Good evening, and welcome to the new series from the Screens Margins Podcast Network. This is all about Ovid. That's all with an O. About with an O. Ovid with an O. I am your host, B. Peterson, and joining me on this art house journey is... Yeah, I guess that's my my cue to introduce myself. Hi, my name is uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I am a film critic who hails these days from the critically acclaimed network. And boy, howdy! I am so happy to be here. Uh, I, I I thought I'd have fun with the intro. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, boils and ghouls. We're going to be talking about seven limbs. <laughs> what? Wait, wait. We need to come up with a crypt keeper pun for for Ovid. Mm. Like some something I really I, I bl- haven't, blood or gore. I haven't related. seen any of Tales of the Crypt though, so I I I, I can't. You you're, that's going to be your job. Um, okay. Um, uh, Tales from the Crypt is not on Ovid, but uh, a lot of really wonderful things are. So I guess we'll be talking about some of those. Yes, uh, Ovid TV is a streaming service um, that uh, it makes. T- I, I put it this way: it makes Criterion Channel look like Netflix. Um, it is. It is a host to the most art house of art house cinema, to the things that you would only see in a museum. One of their biggest documentary series is about the relationship between ancient Greece and owls. Like this is the realm of what we're what we're talking about. And it when I I I it's it's kind of a long story, but a couple weeks ago I got in touch with Ovid and I figured, you know what, if I am going to do a series about a streaming service, this really would be the perfect one to go with. And so I put it out there to people on just like would anyone be interested in a regular podcast about Ovid TV? And but of course, Whitney Seibold said me. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, Ovid is, Ovid is for people like me, I think. Um, (laughs) people who are raised in big cities, who have regular access to art houses, who in their teens and 20 years became increasingly obsessed with, uh, increasingly oblique films that their friends just didn't want to see. Uh, so, uh, I would always get word, uh, here in Los Angeles, I would read from the LA Weekly, which, uh... Back in the day was actually quite a good weekly. Don't look at what it has become these days. But uh, they would have all of these listings about what was playing at LACMA, the local art museum, or what was going to be playing at this like underground theater that has 30 seats in Hollywood for a day. And it's five hours long and it comes from the Philippines. And it's like, oh, I'm intensely interested in these things. And a lot of these weekly indie rags would have the wherewithal to send critics to these screenings. So there'd be write-ups on these things. And one of my dream jobs was to write for one of these little indies and go to these five-hour Filipino movies and figure out what was really going on. And, well, first of all, the indies uh, ended. And secondly, I was working too much and had too much of a social life to make it out to some of these screenings. Also, I was broke at the time. That would that puts a, a cramp in your style. Uh but here, here comes Ovid that has a compilation of all of those kinds of movies, the things that were playing in a museum for a day uh, in a big city and you always heard about and you always really wanted to see. And all the coolest critics you knew were going to see these things. And, uh, 
and now now they're all available. Now they're all in one spot, and they're available nationwide, and I think that's wonderful. Yeah, um, my relationship with art house cinema it's it's funny because I mean I'm I just turned twenty a, uh, a couple months ago, and I'm still very fairly new to to cinema as a concept. Like I I only started watching movies regularly four years ago and so my every year though has been almost like an exponential i my my interest i have seen exponentially more films and my taste has gotten exponentially less mainstream um four years ago uh, or five years ago i was rooting for la la land to win best picture and then i saw moonlight and that shifted my entire perspective on cinema and then i was introduced a year later to tarkovsky and that shifted everything and so every year has been this new essentially like new wave of appreciation for a different type of cinema and in like and like about a month ago i probably went on another one of those shifts in which i mean and this podcast really is i mean thanks to dave white <laughs> um because i i did a, a i took a day and i just did two dave white double feature specials in watching uh uh where like where does your hidden smile lie, uh, lie from pedro costa and then followed that up with cecilia um, and which was the film that the documentary Where Does Your Hidden Smile Lie be about and then I followed that up with um, a double feature of Dragon Inn the 1967 uh, uh, Kung Fu uh, epic and then did that with Goodbye Dragon Inn the Sai Ming Ling film about people watching that movie in a theater and I was just like this is this is where my tastes lie now this is the kind of thing that mm. I'm watching and so of course Ovid, which I mean, Dave White introduced at least me to through them talking about him talking about it with Alonzo Doralde on their streamings on their on their podcast, Linoleum Knife. I mean, this is this is this is where I am now. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, Dave White is uh, is a, a very positive influence uh, because Dave White has uh some pretty damn impeccable taste i'll say that uh, like he he's mm-hmm. not a not above a good gory horror flick but he is the one who will really champion and uh try to sell in a very positive way a lot of these really long oblique uh at least in the united states obscure uh dramas that you don't really get here talked about a lot of other places uh and you know what that's a critic's job is to have that sort of taste and uh, i too uh I, I was 20 once, um, maybe about five years ago, and uh, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm 42, but uh, yeah, there, I, I too went through this wave once where I was looking for uh, a, a lot more challenging, interesting cinema that existed kind of on the outside. I didn't want to have the same kinds of conversations that a lot of, uh, a lot of peers and even a lot of critics were having. Uh, and luckily, uh, I was living right next door to Cinephile Video, so they had a good appreciation for camp, but they also had, you know, the films of Tsai Ming Lang sectioned off. Uh, they had, you know, a bunch of really oblique queer cinema that I didn't have access to previously. Uh, and I think just sort of living in the big city, being exposed to this kind of stuff really helped. And when I finally got to meet Dave White in my life as well, uh, he it was sort of a relief 
to learn that that kind of cinema was being sought out, celebrated, and sold by a certain class of people, and that class of people being classy AF people. And that's, yeah, I'm, I'm glad, uh, glad Dave White can both sort of push us in that direction. Yeah, I mean, and, and I would, I mean, and I also have to admit, I mean, you, you and William Bibiani are kind of like the, 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 those people for me, because I mean, my first podcast that I ever recorded was with you guys, and it was about queer cinema, and it was you who was recommending all of these movies that I'd never heard of. You talked about Fossbinder for the first time, and now I have a podcast about Rainer Werner Fossbinder, and... And, oh, well. and I've now seen Scorpio Rising and all of these things I've I have now I have now been introduced to and so and I think that it and which is why now let's let's get into the meat of this that for our first episode I figured that it wouldn't it be freaking perfect if we put a cap on that um on that first podcast that I recorded, that I ever recorded, and that I recorded with you and Bibbs, um, if we talked about the films that we recommended to each other that we've now finally gotten around to and that are on Ovid. So for this podcast all about Ovid, it's going to be pretty much the how it's going to work is we're going to talk about whatever we've recently watched on Ovid. And for our first episode, I made sure that you saw something that I recommended on our episode about queer cinema. And I saw something that you recommended to me on our first episode about queer cinema. And so why don't we start with your recommendation to me? Why don't we talk about Lizzie Borden's 1983 film, Born in Flames? Oh my word. Um, this was actually one that came to me pretty recently. Um, I had heard of Born in Flames, but I had never sat down to watch it until um, it was programmed uh, at the New Beverly Cinema, where I work. And I got to present it to a bunch of people. Brand new print. It's a film from 1983. And uh, I, I was struck at how just sort of striking, uh, struck by striking. Uh, I was I was just struck at how uh, unique it was, how punk rock it was. Uh, I uh, have developed a very keen interest in uh, punk rock cinema in punk music, uh, especially in um, lesbian punk music. And so this was like right up my alley. I had to rush out and f- watch it as soon as I could. And it was on Ovid. I forced William to watch it. I asked him to put it on a poll. And luckily it was the uh, the winner over on our podcast. And uh, so William watched it. And he fell in love instantly. And I'm so glad he did. Uh, I-, I haven't been able to buy the Red Crayola soundtrack record yet i don't know if it even exists but i would love to have it uh but yeah born in flames is this wonderful uh science fiction punk rock kind of dystopian movie uh it was made in 1983 by lizzie borden and it takes place uh, in a future new york where essentially there's already been a revolution and it's already sort of this com almost like communist socialist utopia the way that uh those on the extreme left would have it be. But it also points out that even if the political system shifts to the extreme left, there's still going to be a lot of really horrendous issues that stem from uh, homophobia, uh, racism, and sexism. Those things are still going to exist, and they're still going to inform a lot of the decisions we make. So 
that's a really interesting political point that Born in Flames is making, that it doesn't really matter if we get a, a political system that we really, really want, we're still going to have to deal with the problems uh, that are plaguing, plaguing society. Uh, and it tells it from the perspective of these two pirate radio stations, which is, can we cuss on this podcast? Yes, I mean, you can. Okay. I, 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 how it's going to work is this podcast will go out. It'll be available for everyone. I will um, not bleep, but like just edit out like little clips of sound. I'm not going to say mm-hmm. you can cuss however much you want. I'll, I'll just, I'll be editing it out in okay. post. Uh, feel talk as talk as you'd like. Okay. Well, uh, uh, then prepare to edit this out because this takes place in a world where everything is really fucking cool. Uh, like if, if, if you're into sort of counterculture and outsider culture, uh, and you were into that sort of thing in the early 1980s, having your own private, private pirate radio station was really cool. It was so, uh, so, so wonderfully rebellious, uh, so emblematic of sticking it to the man of taking control of media and that's, I think, where a lot of excitement, where a film like Born in Flames and a lot of punk rock cinema comes in, is this is really homemade. You're getting away with something. If you look to uh, the No Wave movement in New York, this is def- this is right out of the center of all of that. Um, and you get a lot of really interesting music, you get a lot of really interesting concepts, and you get a big middle finger to all of the powers that be. So we have this flaming gay punk uh just screed against all of these uh systematic issues within society uh and it's just so exciting to watch um i'm so glad that other people are discovering it uh and i'm glad i discovered it like i said this is one of those films that i watched when i was already 40 and i wished i had seen it when i was 18 uh, there's so many of these films that I think would have so positively informed me and my confidence and my ability to be sort of really super comfortable with being an outsider had I seen them at a younger age. Uh, yeah. And I would really wish that more like high school kids could seek out and watch Born in Flames. If you're listening to this and you're in high school, if you're you know, 15, 16, 17 definitely watch this movie and let it seep into your blood because this is something that will give you superpowers. It will make you so much stronger. Yeah, no, I mean, that that was my immediate reaction too. I'm, again, I'm 20 years old. I feel like I saw this movie a decade too late. I feel yeah. like this this is a film that, <laughs> this, this, this is like a fundamental of, of political filmmaking and of mockumentary filmmaking. I think this might be, in terms of form, like one of, perhaps the strongest use of the mockumentary format that I've seen in anything because of how by not making this a narrative that puts some distance between you and and what you're seeing on screen by making it mockumentary by putting in the news and seeing the underground performances like it was your someone just managed to catch this on a camera while it was happening it gives this incredibly spontaneous feel and this immediate this immediacy this relevancy that 
that still that still holds today like they're what these people are talking about some of the language that people use might be a bit different but the issues and the needs are exactly the same about Mm. i mean we had a pan we have we are in a pandemic and the all of this the discussion about who's getting laid off from jobs is the exact conversation that they this the the thing it's the same thing and yeah yeah and it it allows for these people to talk i mean just completely frankly whether they're improvised or scripted it doesn't matter because people are speaking their minds in such this raw way uh uh People like uh, Florence Kel- Kennedy, who's playing Zella, or Jean uh, Satterfield, who's playing Adelaide Norris um, in the film. These these various uh, uh, rebellious, uh, uh, re- defiant figures. There, it it's so it's so freaking powerful that it <laughs> it grabs you and it never lets you go. And yeah, it's just there. The yeah, right and the music, the music. I love like every single time that "Born in Flames" song, or like towards the beginning, there's there's a, a just a, a bit of, of of this this punk group performing, and it's just bliss. It's yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, gosh, it's so delightful. Mm. There is something so um, just so so beautifully honest about this kind of lo-fi filmmaking. Uh, it it comes from a place where uh, you sense there's just so much passion behind it. And I don't get a lot of that passion. Uh, weirdly enough, as uh, film-making equipment became a lot more ubiquitous and became a lot more available to the public, and people are making movies at home, when these sort of homemade movies started to look so much more slick, I think a lot of the people who were making them were trying to make them look slick. And now even amateurs have so much more professional editing savvy they're not fighting against the equipment. And as such, there's actually kind of an immediacy lost. Uh, and also, you know, and until TikTok came along, weirdly enough, I didn't sense a lot of this uh, heart in a lot of modern underground filmmaking. And I, I tried to see a little bit, but a lot of it became very uh, branded. Uh, I think mm-hmm. a lot of the, the voice of underground filmmaking became a lot more about the self, if you will, uh, a lot more about addressing the camera, a lot more about selling yourself, selling your brand, selling yourself as a brand. Uh, it was about kind of falling into the system rather than trying to break out of it. And I feel like I watch a film like Born in Flames and it reminds me, a very, very old man, of what what rebellion used to look like and how it doesn't really seem to resemble that anymore. And... Not that it's not happening, but it just is so much more bracing when it comes from this era because it was so much more direct, because people were pushing through a lot of technical limitations and were trying to stick it to the man, as it were, that it, it just feels so much more refreshing to witness. And I've, I'm glad that it's still out there because it still feels that way. It doesn't feel dated. It feels just as immediate and as important as it always did. Yeah. Um, yeah, the the only moment, and there is one moment, that mm. does feel unfortunately dated, and it's not the film's fault, is the ending of the movie, because the because these these like the women's army and these all these groups they by the end they've decided like we're gonna start working together like the 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 which is like the 
I'm the argument that I believe in that the the thing that's more important than uniting like trying to find the balance between the far left and the far right the is to unite the 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 slightly left with the far left to unify the left oh, right and then <laughs> and so that's essentially the ultimate message of this movie is all of these factions like oh, okay we need to all come together over this over this this problem the the final act of defiance in the movie the last shot of the movie though and i'm going to spoil this because i i really my my thing with spoilers is is that i'm recording these podcasts i mean yes for an audience but also this is just my this is my place where i want to talk about the film and so i'm going to put in all my thoughts about the film regardless of whether it spoils it so there's your warning the final shot of this film is them blowing up uh, uh, a radio tower on the Twin Towers. And obviously there is that, that as unfortunately, again, to no fault of the filmmakers, aged poorly because of, well, obviously 9-11. And so it's just the one thing that at the very end of the movie, I was like, oh, that's a little slightly off-putting. But other than that, it really, the everything works today. Yeah, yeah. Well, the uh, there's that... Uh... This idea that punk rock comes with it uh, a good deal of destruction is something mm-hmm. that doesn't really may may not read to a lot of modern audiences where you're so angry at the system that you wish you could just sort of destroy the system. And I've I've actually uh, talked to a few younger people about the film Fight Club, which is very oh, much yeah. about a, a very very particular brand of being disaffected from the mainstream as a white male in the '90s. And uh, how that movie climaxes with uh, buildings being destroyed. And it is about uh, confronting things and abusing the system to the point where you can actually tear it down because it's all meaningless to you. And that's a a really difficult thing to sell uh, to some younger people who are uh, trying to nurture and trying to build new things rather than merely be angry and destroy stuff. Uh, And... Born in Flames is about that destruction, and that's about right. what a lot of punk rock is about. It's about tearing down the old system and blowing other things up and taking down all of these gigantic edifices. So, you know, these uh, you look at these gigantic golden towers, uh, the, the punk rock fantasy is, what if that tower were just a smoking hole? Uh, yes. And... And that's the impulse. And, you know, maybe not actually kill people, but the <laughs> idea is let's let's destroy this. Let's tear it down. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. And to be clear, they blow up the radio tower on top of the building. They don't actually blow up the building because they want to stop like the mainstream news from putting out all their disinformation about our movement. Yeah. And so well, and cons- consider how uh, how it would look, though. If, what if uh, a movie were made today, some really rebellious film, and it were about uh, taking out it would, it would be about like taking out Fox News, like the, this gi- gigantic <laughs> right. disinformation network. What would it be about if it were about this like group of freelance terrorists who are going to uh, blow up these uh, broadcast towers for some, uh, you know, as they perceived it, some evil of the world? Uh, that I think that that would be sort of like a modern day equivalent, and I don't think anybody would make that kind of movie these days. Uh, or or, I mean, or they or they would, but it would be like a, this really sort of daring underground thing, and it would you know make monocles pop. Uh, yes, <laughs> I, I would love to see something like that. I think that'd be a, a fun piece of art just to see you know this kind of 
confrontation in art. That's something that I, I'm a big fan of. Yeah, I mean, who's who's to say that it wouldn't work? Uh, I just wanted to point out that regarding Fight Club, that's a film that I think <laughs> has the right idea, but David Fincher just made it look too darn freaking cool that it mm. basically eventually gave out the opposite message that is like, look how cool Tyler Durden is. And I just want to say that if you'd like the better version of Fight Club, watch The Art of Self-Defense from 2019 starring Jesse Eisenberg because that film mm. is... It, it's it's the same... It's almost the same movie in terms uh-huh. of the character arc, but it strips all of the the slickness and the style out of it and it just makes it it shows you how pathetic these people are and also at the end it is explicitly explicitly feminist in that okay that it's the women that need to have the say here um and so i i watch the art of self-defense yeah. if you ever are in the mood to watch fight club again <laughs> Yeah, that, that, that's the irony of a, a lot of these uh, sort of male morality fables, and to go off on a little bit of a tangent. But yeah, Fight Club showed up on like dorm room posters, and a lot of men, young men, thought that uh, Tyler Durden was just the coolest thing in the world. The point is he's not. The point is he's he's like this destructive impulse that needs to be sort of fought against, and what made that impulse sort of born. Tyler Durden is like the tingler that grows on your spine when you feel a certain way. <laughs> Uh, to because I'll use any excuse to bring up uh, William Castle's The Tingler. But yeah, he's like this thing inside of you, that, that this evil impulse that grows up inside of you. And I agree with you. I think that David Fincher made the movie too cool for a lot of audiences to understand the messaging in the film. Uh, I feel the same way about something like A Clockwork Orange or uh, or Scarface. Uh, they, they make the lifestyle seem like so much fun that a lot of the audiences fail to acknowledge that there's a lot more going on in that film in those films uh clockwork orange is a much more complex movie than just wouldn't it be fun to be this evil criminal no that's not and and they're (laughs) and they're truly evil people that's the whole point of the movie what does society do with evil and uh anyway uh that but that's my tangent uh born in flames doesn't have any such ambiguity and i think it's homemade aesthetic makes you feel it more vividly rather than keep you at a distance right yeah yeah it's it's a brilliant film and and going back to your comment about tiktok and like because this is something that like i've seen in like i've grown up with is the evolution of well youtube which is now one of the largest uh, film distributors in the world, P- mm. perhaps the largest film distributor in the world, and and you talk about that immediacy, and because you go back to like two thousand seven to two thousand ten, there's a lot of, I mean, specifically like before they could get ten eighty p video, and like you could, it was a lot, and like you could ca- you could only release stuff that was like maybe up to fifteen minutes. That's just all mm. the, the system could handle. You get a lot of this really raw, interesting filmmaking, and where I what again TikTok. It's I I still haven't gotten the app, but it seems to be. For at least the time being, until like YouTube had now 
15 years later um, has become a place for brands and a lot slicker stuff that if you want to make it, you have to have this very slick style, which in some cases works and sometimes it just feels very artificial. TikTok has has wound back the clock on that where it's just like you got 60 seconds, um, vertical video, um, you there's it's using all of these new formats with like text on screen and using music in a very specific way it's it's the scorpio rising of its day <laughs> <laughs> well it, i mean you, you you joke but that's kind of what it is it's fun when something feels like it's really homemade and i'm watching some tiktoks by some young people uh and and they're they're doing it because they seem to uh they seem to love it they're doing it for their own sake uh right there's there's this phenomenon that uh, uh, some YouTubers have latched onto called manufacturing authenticity, where uh, a lot of people are put up like the fancy backgrounds. They have professional makeup jobs. They have professional sound. They have professional camera equipment, and then they try to make it look like it's really off the cuff. And they'll have crew mm-hmm. off camera like shout things to them as if they're just sort of like throwing it together that morning, and it's all completely unprofessional. And that authenticity is why people are still going to YouTube even though it's not authentic anymore, at least in a lot of cases, a lot of people are making their living on YouTube. Now that's just what some people that's it's television now. Uh, and TikTok, yeah, to, to your point is the thing that is now grabbing that, uh, kind of underground excitable audience who are doing it because they're having fun with it and they're presenting their true selves. And that's, what's more exciting about TikTok. Um, TikTok's going to become commercial as well. It's already a gigantic corporation. It's been politicized, which I think works in its favor. Mm -hmm. When an extreme right-wing president comes out against it, all you're going to do is make it more fun. Uh, Because I grew up during during the Reagan era, and that's exactly what was happening with Born in Flames. Born in Flames came out in 1983. That was just a few years into the first Reagan administration. And... It was a really, really dark time for uh, minorities and for people on the left and for gay people. It was just kind of really horrible and needed to be railed against. And you'll see it in a lot of media uh, how Reagan's presence in America and this like sh- extreme shift to the right was creating a lot of this really angry underground uh, punk rock sensibility. I mean, that's where kind of punk rock exploded was during... Uh, the early years of the Reagan administration and this lean to the right of the United States. Uh, in some cases, it was really fighting against it. And you'll see it in science fiction movies like John Carpenter's They Live. That's one of like mm-hmm. the ultimate films of the Reagan administration and how all of these things that were sort of pushing the country to the right it tur- in that movie turned out to be a space alien conspiracy to re- erase our minds and control us. Uh, and then you'll see it sort of in favor of uh, Reagan's like really pro-military stance in films like Rambo First Blood Part Two uh, or mm-hmm. Commando, where these like American supermen are going to go, uh, you know, arm themselves to the teeth and just murder a bunch of guys in the in the the, the name of righteousness. Uh, yeah. So uh, I, I feel like Born in Flames and TikTok are reacting to this. I'm totally serious about this are reacting to this inexorable shift to the right uh, of whatever the present United States looked like in I'm 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 trying to remember who is the like there's a daughter of some right-wing politician that is on TikTok and makes like super far right I'm trying or or super like far left uh, intersectional feminist TikToks I'm trying to remember 
Oh, it's uh, uh, it's uh, the the daughter of Trump's press secretary. She is. Uh, oh yes, that's right. That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. She, she's uh, she's a yeah. She's super left wing. Uh, her mom was Trump's <laughs> press secretary and would like regularly lie and say stupid things to the press. And she'd just go home and say, "My mom is terrible," and do these feminist TikToks. It's yeah, amazing. It's amazing yeah. to witness. Sorry, bump my yeah, mic there. Yeah, and and I just want to point out that on YouTube there are still people who are capturing that original raw YouTube. It hasn't gone extinct. Mm. It's just it's 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 now uh, uh, not the biggest thing on the platform anymore. There are still people like ProZD, these people who are just these raw short little videos sketches that are that are truly some. Beautiful things to be- behold, and by the way, Pro ZD is the guy who voices the com- the 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 guy go- the computer in love with a lamp in Tuca and Birdie, um, <laughs> the best part of Tuca and Birdie, <laughs> um, mm. and he's he's a YouTuber. Um, and anyway, mm. so but really, what and this is my beautiful segue. If you want to go back to because nowadays what we see on YouTube are these vlogs. That's like the main big thing. But if you want to go back to the original vlogger, then you have to go back to Cheryl Denier. And this is my segue to what I recommended to y'all on our episode of Queer Cinema, which is the early works of Cheryl Denier. And Cheryl Denier is most well known for her 1996 film, The Watermelon Woman. The first, um, apparently the first um, uh, feature film written and directed by a black lesbian. And it's one of the greatest films ever made. If I were allowed to be put stuff on the sight and sound pole, it would be on there. Um, It's one of the great things. But... I think equally as important as The Watermelon Woman is her early works. Um, And this is on Ovid. You can find the early works of Cheryl Denier. And um, it, they consist of, it consists of six short films um, ranging between like two and a half to 28 minutes. And it's these, I mean, it's, it's Cheryl Denier. So it's, it's, she called them Dunier mentories um, because they were, it was this blend of narrative and documentary and experimental film and all of these things in here that she was working with in her, what she calls her video work um, that is exploring herself and sexuality and race and gentrification. Like all of these concepts are in here. And, and I still like, and you go back to her first one, her 1990 film, uh, Janine, which is, if you watch it nowadays, is really the earliest vlog that you might be able to find because it's what it is. Well, um, Cheryl Dunier uh, was very much inspired by a short film called David Holtzman's Diary. Are you familiar with David Holtzman's Diary? I've heard of it and, uh, and s- she, on several occasions. Yeah, she uh, she na- and she even name checked it in couple a uh, couple of her shorts. Uh, David Holtzman's Diary was uh, a 1967 short film. Uh, well, I, I guess it's not a short. I guess it's it's a it's like over an hour, so it's about it's technically feature length. But it's told in this documentary style, and it, the, this fictional man, uh, David Holtzman, is essentially just sort of recording his everyday life. And there's a lot of handheld camera work, there's a lot of confessional things right to the camera, but uh, it's it's all 
I think it's improvised. I don't think it's actually scripted. Um, but it really kind of changed the way a lot of uh, younger filmmakers were thinking about cinema at the time, that it doesn't have to be something that's really kind of slick and professional. It can just feel really confessional. It is this diary. Uh, that's a fictional piece, though, uh, where he's sort of making up his own past. But I think a lot of it was um, also really informed by uh, the, the filmmaker's actual... Let me look up the filmmaker's name. Uh, James McBride is the director okay. of David Holtzman's diary. Uh, and... So she's a lot of Which, by the way, uh, is free on Tubi. Of course it is. David Holtzman's um, Diary. Of course Diary. it is. Watch David Holtzman's Diary. It's a really important movie. Uh, but yeah, a, a lot of filmmakers who were uh, coming of age and learning their craft in the late 80s and early 90s were sold this film. This was a big educational tool for a number of uh, decades. <clears throat> I, I went to school in the late 90s and I was actually, we were still uh, enjoying some screenings of david holtzman's diary so cheryl dunier comes in with uh video technology vhs technology uh and is going to going to school and learning these sort of very naturalistic techniques uh and so she decided to make one of her first short films a very similar confessional where she just sort of sits and tells an anecdote now cheryl dunier is charismatic and she is a master raconteur she can just sort of keep your attention with this long, these long confessional stories about her own life. And she's, she's lived a really interesting life. She's a, a queer woman who was raised in, uh, born in Liberia, but raised in the big city in the United States and talking about her in Philadelphia specifically. Uh, and in fact, Philadelphia, um, if you know anything about David Lynch, his origin story is he went to Philadelphia once and that kind of informed all of, all of his <laughs> All of his style and a lot of his ideas about urban living and how it contrasts with the suburban living and like everything about uh, David Lynch's ideas are all about, hey, he lived in Philadelphia and he didn't have a good time. <laughs> now, watch Eraserhead. That's like his experience of living in Philadelphia. <laughs> yeah, Cheryl Dunier is is living in Philadelphia. She's finding herself and in that really 1990s way is starting to become a lot more frank and open about issues of race and sexuality that were just making their way into uh, indie cinema at the time as well. Uh, so she's part of this big rising wave of uh, frank confessional voices that uh, were sort of moving their way into a lot of indie cinema at the time. I noticed that we're talking about we were talking about TikTok. We're talking about um, sort of documentary film style with Born in Flames. A lot of these big spikes in creativity and gener generational voices are going to come hand in hand with the development of certain kinds of filming technology. Uh, right. In yeah, Born in Flames was shot on lo-fi film. Talk TikToks are filmed on phones. Uh, this comes right in that little uh, spark when. VHS filmmaking and video mm -hmm. filmmaking uh, started to make its way into people's hands. And I know it's not an aesthetic that a lot of people like anymore. Uh, and because so many lo-fi films can have hi-fi cameras now, I feel like there's mm -hmm. less nostalgia for this era than there is perhaps for the stuff from a decade previous, uh, just because of yeah. the look, the look and sound quality of it. Yeah, uh, while I was at MSU for, for my one year um, there, um, one of the things that in, they had in their film program is that they actually had 
um, a conversion system you could shoot if you wanted your film on VHS like they 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 had a they had like a scanning system they had all the technology for it that if you wanted to that you could shoot your stuff on VHS because some people like that aesthetic so it's I know that it's still out there but yeah you're right it's not nearly as like it's it was stuck in between the the like the 16 millimeter and the DSLR like the, mm. the it was just this brief little moment and and I truly like out of all of the stuff that I've seen, I genuinely think that like some of the best use of the medium is here with the early works of Cheryl Dunier. It's, 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 it's this brilliant, like she, again, Dunier Mentor, she's, she's using herself as this, as this focal point of all of these issues, all of these, these intersections between identities and exploiting it for comedy, for awkwardness, for genuine emotion. It's this, it's this, all of these things. And they're all very different from each other because we have, we've mostly been like talking about Janine, her, her first short film, which I still maintain is one of the best short films ever made in which she has this confessional about, um, about her experience with a white woman throughout her childhood and adolescence and growing up and how the power dynamics, uh, affected her profoundly. And it, it intercuts with the shot of them blowing out a candle um, of, of her blowing out a candle. It's just all, and these photographs and it's, it really is just a, it's a vlog from 1990. Um, and then we have stuff like uh, she don't fade and, um, and, and, and then her, the final piece in the, in, in this, in the early works is greetings from Africa, which is her first like official short film that was shot on film where she's taking herself and making a fictionalized version of herself and telling these stories of, of relationships. You have the potluck and the passion. And you can see as we go through all these films, her like her, her, the people she's working like who she's working with, like her various, you know, partners um, mm. that move in and out of her movies, like um, the person she's with um, in the potluck and the passion she met at the end of she don't fade, um, and she eventually in greetings from Africa is t- is at the beginning of that she's talking about how she's closed that relationship is closed off. Um, and there's all of these threads that go throughout here and, and she'll break the fourth wall and talk to you about how she's making the movie and how she feels about making the movie. And it's, it's really, it's just, it's so, if it's, it's a, it's a genre unto itself. Yeah, this uh, that kind of self awareness, um, and and again, we're we're right in the middle of uh, a, a certain a certain window of nostalgia for me personally because I I remember seeing a lot of this stuff, and I remember making films like this with a lot of friends, and how the uh, mode of the day in in the nineteen nineties was to be a lot more frank and be a lot more confessional, and the criticism of it at the time was that it became very self obsessed. That it wasn't about mm-hmm. telling a story and trying to capture some kind of universal experience, looking out at the world and reflecting on it. It all became very uh, interior. Uh, I remember when Nirvana exploded. That was the main criticism of Nirvana as songwriters, was it was all a little too personal. It was a little too interior and as such became a little bit too narcissistic. 
And I think that's uh, that was a criticism of films like uh, like the films of Cheryl Dunier. Of course, a lot of the people who said this kind of art is narcissistic were also trying to say in a roundabout way, we don't want to hear black voices. We don't want to hear queer voices. It was actually a way right. of kind of keeping a lot of these voices out of the conversation. But at the same time, they're also right. It was incredibly narcissistic. It was about looking within. Um, to add a little bit of... Uh, anecdotal context to where a lot of these films were coming from uh this was uh like just after the end of the cold war uh you look at the films made before the cold war and it is about the world and it is about how you don't trust or you do trust the systems that you live inside of and uh when the cold war ended a lot of issues of national identity became became uh began to creep into our media you look at something like the X-Files, all of a sudden it's no longer about how the government is has all of these spy systems that are taking care of these underground wars during the Cold War. All that's over. Now all of the conspiracy is about mistrust of your own government. It's about how the government is doing these cover-ups. Why they landed on space aliens as the main cover-up is a little, a little bizarre. But, you know, it made it kind of fun, I suppose. We mistrust our government. They're not here to be systematically racist and keep uh you know women out you know disenfranchised no they're all they really want to do is make sure that the, we don't know about aliens because if we did our minds would be blown man <laughs> uh uh so a lot of uh the art at the time and especially a lot of the underground art became very self-reflective what what is inside of us what are we going to fill this national identity hole with something and a lot of it was really nihilistic a lot of it was nothing really makes sense and that's where you get art like nirvana there's there's emptiness there's pain there's depression inside of us now that we haven't been able to look at until now uh a lot of it was really kind of satirical as well. You'll see a lot of, um, uh, I'm not sure if the, you'll see a lot of pictures of this, but like people were ironically wearing like cat in the hat hats to raves or uh, <laughs> the Tide logo on their t-shirts, you know, where they're wearing a brand name ironically. Uh, and, but at the same time, you'll get artists like Cheryl Dunier who are going to use this time, this time of malaise, of emptiness to say, there's a lot of experiences here that we've been ignoring because we've been so focused on national identity. And now we're going to, we have this opportunity and this technology to confess. And I feel like Cheryl Dunier's early films and the watermelon woman, uh, which is also available on Ovid, uh, to ex explore that, to confess it and to say it out loud and say, this is our experience. This is what art looks like to us. And at the same time, we are also confessing that, or that is Cheryl Dunier is confessing that she uh, is really insecure about a lot, that she's going through a lot of these systems and trying to find just romantic relationships and how awkward that is and how silly that can feel in this world where she's just now finding her voice. It's really exciting. It, yeah, it, 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 it really is. I mean, just every, when last year, when I first saw these films, I was just, every single one was like a new brand new discovery and like seeing you see the origins of what is commonplace nowadays or you see like because the fact is is like the 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 narcissisticness of maybe this you know what about what about the me the individual it it'll it'll come across as narcissistic when it's you know 
uh, a, 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 a white man, a cishet white man yuppie doing this thing. But here, mm. the voices are still like we still these voices are still not nearly as common, and it still feels revolutionary today. Again, like this is this stuff has not. I mean, it's dated in the sense that it's very, 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 very ninety. But it's mm-hmm. in terms of the ideas that that are being explored, and in terms of the 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 needs that are being expressed, it's 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 all still right there. And and yeah, like the like the potluck and the passion has this element throughout it where it's almost like reality TV for a bit because we'll have this narrative that's going on, and then we'll cut to the to the actors in front of a blank wall. It's like, yes, and see, this is the part where I get dumped. And this is how I felt about that. And it's like, oh, this is reality TV before the Truman mm. Show. This is someone, this is, <laughs> like, this is, this, all of this stuff is, is it was there and it was done by, it was being done by these, these, these marginalized voices before, oh gosh, it's, before it was cool. It, it's, uh, it is so hard to explain to younger people how important MTV was at the time in terms of <laughs> the, the, the real world and the voice it represented and the kinds of art that it was putting together with music videos. Um, what I find really hilarious is you'll still today find old guys my age lamenting, oh man, I remember when MTV used to show videos. Like MTV hasn't shown videos for like nearly 30 years, dude. Get over <laughs> it. Like yeah, it was a good time, but you know, don't don't pretend like we can go back in some sort of way. But yeah, at at the time, that kind of voice uh, in terms of the real world and the kind of music that was being shown and the kind of art that was being shown on MTV really informed a lot of uh, what was going on at the time. Anyway, to to <laughs> go off on a, another brief rant. Uh, I also would like to point out that her short Vanilla Sex, which is about um, the nuances in language in the queer community, um, like what does that mean if you're a white person or if you're a black person, that that short film is also an experiment with vertical video. Um, it's, it's, it is in a shoebox aspect ratio. It's using mm-hmm. that, and I, and I just found that like watching it again, I was just like, oh yeah, this is this is vertical video. I mean, yes, there's like the box around, but it's all blacked out. It's just like this is again like the experiment is being done. Um, Cheryl Denier is doing the thing before the thing became the main thing, and and yeah, just all of these films, they're all great. An Untitled Portrait is is sweet. Um, Greetings from Africa is searing. She don't fade in the potluck and passion are just really enjoyable vanilla sex is is very interesting and janine i it's 10 out of 10 i i just absolutely love that so yeah these 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 short films they they these should all be taught everything cheryl denier did in the 90s should be taught in film schools as she is one of the most important filmmakers not only of her generation but of the 20th and 21st centuries Mm, yeah 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 uh, what other what other shorts did we see? Um, yeah, an entitled portrait. It, they were mostly, even though they weren't all uh personal, they're all they're all about Cheryl Dunier and Cheryl Dunier's life yes. and the the scene she was living in and the people she was living around, the kind of people she was dating. And uh, 
and they're all uh, and they're all very raw and they're all very frank and they're all really funny. I think that's something that mm-hmm. we need to point out here. We're talking about Born in Flames about this important sort of punk rock uh, for, like fist in the face. Uh, there's not a lot of levity in something like Born in Flames, uh, which is fine. That's not where it's standing. But uh, Cheryl Dunier wants to tell it in a really kind of kind of an acerbic, a very genial sort of way. She's very conversational in the way she's confessing all of these things to us. It's not like she's breaking down and like ripping her heart out. She's being very brave, but she's doing it in a very easygoing sort of way. And as such, her humor comes through. Her good humor comes through. Her her friendliness, uh, as it were, comes through. You know, we, we get a much more complicated portrait of her as a human being rather than just her being defined by these experiences. Uh, And as such, they're just really, really a joy to watch. They're really relaxing Mm -hmm. to watch. They're, they're, they're very, um, they're very, they're very personal in that you like, she feels like a friend of yours that you would have over at a party. And she's just sort of sitting there, you're enjoying a beer together and you're having a good conversation. That's what it feels like to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's great. And and if the occasion arises, she'll not hesitate to call you out on your BS. <laughs> yep. Um. So so yeah. And and speaking of early '90s nostalgia, uh, <laughs> we also uh, watched one other thing together, the both of us. And this was not by any sort of deliberate coordination. You just happened to watch what I was planning to watch. Okay. <laughs> um, we we both watched uh Siming Liang's uh, uh theatrical uh directorial debut uh Rebels of the Neon God from 1992 which is brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> oh god, this film is my boo. Uh, I love this movie. Um Yeah, and and again, this this was like not just 90s nostalgia it's also a very personal nostalgia for me there's a scene in this movie where one of the characters uh he's stalking uh some other characters and he gets locked inside of a video arcade uh in in uh i think it takes place in taipei and he uh he falls asleep on the floor of this shut down video arcade and he wakes up in the morning and like i can smell that arcade i've been in that arcade before I wasn't in Taipei in 1991 when they were making this, but I, I felt like I was. And he kind of staggers out into the light. It's like, th- this this is something I've experienced. I, I would, like, go to video arcades, and I'd be there when they shut down. I'd be there when they turned on. And, yeah, just sort of that, there was this really kind of raw, visceral nostalgia for me, watching Rebels of the Neon God. But aside from that, it's also quite a good drama uh, in t- telling a really effective story about a very particular kind of alienation, uh, and I feel like I feel like this is alienation from two different angles, and it gets it just nails them both perfectly. Uh, on the one hand, we have two lead two leads essentially. Uh, we have uh, Xiao Kang, who's played by Li Kang Sheng, uh, who is a young uh, young boy. He's like a seventeen years old, and he's going to what they call a cram school, and I think that's just mm-hmm. something that. Maybe it's a school that's entirely devoted to preparing you for tests. Uh, it's right. just uh, it's just a way to pass a test and get good good marks. He's going to the school, uh, and he doesn't have a lot in his life other than this school and his parents who insist that he go to this school. There's a really poignant scene, uh, part like about a third of the way into the movie, where uh, Xiao Kang 
gets into his father's taxi cab. His father is a cab driver. And his father recommends that they go see a movie uh, later that day. And that and he goes off on this like little uh, kick where he, uh, the father talks about how they used to go to movies more. And that was really beautiful. And that was really, really great. And why don't we do that more? And then uh, that uh, ideal is interrupted by a, a traffic incursion. He bumps into another car. Uh, because of the other lead character, Atse, he's played by Chen Chaojung, uh, who is, who doesn't have any structure in his life. He lives in sort of this rundown apartment that's constantly flooding, and he uh, is, uh, he's a petty thief. He and his best friend, Ah Peng, break into telephones. I see, I think it's his brother. Oh, it's his brother is Ah Peng, okay. I, I I didn't get the sort of the true nature of the relationship. I mean, at least I in the subtitles, have... he he refers to him as his brother, whether that's f- re- oh, okay. familial or just best friend. Then they, they don't regardless. they don't appear to live together though, which is a little odd. Um, yes, that's that's true. But yeah, uh, over the course of the film, uh, Atse starts having uh, an affair with um, a young woman named Akue. Uh, uh, She's played by Wang Yuwen, and it a lot of the film is about their relationship and how they bond over just sort of hanging out and a lot of it is very conversational a lot of it is going to roller rinks so yeah and you know hanging out at uh hotels and watching television there appears to be just porn on the tv at all i mean i think what they are is they're 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 love hotels where basically you just go to go to do it Essentially, but uh, yeah, Atze's uh, life is kind of soaked in this kind of casual, almost dis- disassociated sexual activity. Like sex is part of it, but they don't really seem to feel one way or another about it. They're all really disconnected from the world, and uh, right. Xiao Kang doesn't have romance or sex, and a lot of the conflict isn't between. Eventually, these two characters will meet in an oblique sort of way. They won't, the stories won't overlap, but they'll start to interact with one another from a distance. And mm-hmm. we'll see that Xiao Kang, in just observing Atse, is seeing this lifestyle that he's not really a part of, and he kind of resents. Whether he wants to be a part of it or not, we can argue, but he kind of resents that he is a little bit too buttoned down. Uh, he seems so dissociated from anything real that he begins to uh, hate somebody who is. And uh, that life of crime seems a lot more raw and a lot more visceral and a lot more exciting uh, to mm-hmm. Xiao Kang. And I, I feel like he's uh, motivated partly by jealousy, but I think he's also motivated by this need to take down like his his own punk rock need to take down the world and he sees atse yeah. as representing a lot of the evils of the world i'm 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 curious um because this was just something that was floating through my head throughout the film i specifically because i mean i know lee kang chang is has been in every single one of Simon lang's uh uh theatrical feature films he's mm-hmm. he's been in all of them um and and I don't know about Lee King Ching, but I know that Simon Lang is queer himself, and a lot mm. of his films explore explicitly all of the, all of these things. I'm wondering if if you picked up on any if there was in this this while he 
while uh, uh, he was stalking this kid, if there was any also in there, maybe some element of desire. Um, oh, like, I mean, like his a little, a little bit, a little bit. And um, that is definitely plays out in the film's final scene where mm-hmm. Xiao Kang uh, goes to like a dating service where he can meet a young woman and he has no interest it's and the way it's set up is it's like a phone bank you go into a little booth right and a phone rings and you can meet people anonymously that it's like a computer chat room but over the phone and uh he uh he goes in, he pays the money he goes into one of these little booths the phone begins ringing and he just sort of looks at it ringing and then he leaves without answering the phone uh and uh that could be an indicator of how interested he is in women uh how you know he want does he want to talk to women no uh there's no explicit queer text but yeah there's definitely some queer subtext in terms of uh how much xiao kang resents and is sort of drawn toward the atze character yeah uh rebels of the neon god i absolutely loved it um mm-hmm. i my the first film that i saw from Simon Lang uh was i mean a couple of weeks ago when i saw uh goodbye dragon inn and that is the fastest that any movie has ever gotten into my top 10 films of all time <laughs> it's it's so it's it's the epitome of slow cinema it's the epitome of just peak like atmosphere of love of cinema like it's we're just in a theater for an hour and 20 minutes watching people watch a a movie and there's so there's 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 literally like i think nine lines of dialogue in the movie like it's it's just this you're it's just being there with these with these people and and that sense of mood and atmosphere is again just so blazingly present here this was like i i mean you felt a lot of nostalgia i've never i was born in 2001 i've never experienced you know like the arcade like like you see here i've never oh. experienced like these oh, you all poor of these child. experiences i know mm. i know but but i was still able to be completely immersed in this in this place this time and and i and i loved being there this it this film captures again like you said these two sides of adolescent angst or uh, uh, malaise, ennui, take a drink. Uh, uh, it's, I was just, yeah, I, I, it, it, but it did like, you know, take me back to my own, you know, like a few years ago when I was like going through all these complicated feelings about, about my own, you know, desires and rebelliousness and all of these things. And it's just, it, it really just, I mean, there's there's great character work and awesome costume design and brilliant uh the the narratives all work beautifully for me though what this movie is more than anything else is just like it's just a time capsule and and it's mm-hmm. one that i loved visiting and opening up and spending some time in and so 
yeah, just the 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 sounds, the sights, the the smells of it, the the feel <laughs> of that just that gross apartment with the water just bubbling up and <sighs> covering anything. It's just you 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 yeah, you feel it, you feel it, and you feel how it rec- it seeps into the emotions of the characters. And when they finally at the end, when um when uh, Atze just breaks down um sobbing with um with with his off and on again uh, uh fling that is just it's just you just feel every every ounce of that that emotion and mm-hmm. yeah it's it's beautiful emotional storytelling yeah yeah there, there was it's it's emotional it's really operatic in sort of how quiet and slow it is and uh and yeah all of all of the vis the visceral smells of it like you can smell this movie uh, like i talked about the, <laughs> there, there's one shot uh, and it's a completely incidental shot it's just sort of linking two scenes together but uh where some characters go up a staircase and they're in this like fluorescently lit hallway and there's chairs like sort of crammed up against the wall and you have to kind of turn sideways oh, to get yeah. past them there's a street fighter 2 poster on the back mm-hmm, wall mm-hmm. and they kind of like just go into this little dingy office i have been in that hallway like that was such an amazing <laughs> thing yeah, just Siming Lang was able to capture all of those things, uh, and I'm Siming Lang is one that I'm. He's a filmmaker I'm unfortunately not familiar enough with, um, and I know that he's he's done uh, over a dozen films at this point. I need to see Goodbye Dragon in. Uh, I need to see. I don't want to sleep alone. I need to see the whole. Uh, some of these are on Ovid, by the way. Uh, yeah. So um, yeah, I. I I really, really, really want to get deeper into Timing Lang because this one really got under my skin. Yes, and also the main piece of music that plays, like the for it's it, the score, if you will. It's just mm. this one piece of music that plays every now and then throughout the film is just infectious. Like it gets stuck in your head, and you're just <laughs> like I just found myself without even thinking, just like humming along in harmony with the, with it. It's just it's. Yeah, again, the atmosphere, mm. the mood is just brilliant, brilliant. It's yeah, it's a brilliant it, filmmaking. Um, the, the the music sounds like uh, the the Escape from New York music. So that's that's it for what we've both seen so far on on Ovid. Um, I know you watched some other stuff. I also watched some mm. other stuff. Why don't we? Why maybe maybe a bit quicker? Um, okay, because yeah, yeah. I mean, this podcast is already running long and and i'm guessing most episodes won't be this long but again this is our first episode let's let's have a good time with it um so yeah what what else have you gotten to on ovid so far uh well this week i also uh, wanted to expand my knowledge of chantal ackerman Uh, chantal ackerman is uh, best known for a a 1975 film called uh jen dealman i guess the full title jen dealman 23 kai du commerce uh du commerce 1080 brussels and uh that is uh a, a towering work it's really great it, it's taught in film schools it's on the essential art house channel over in the criterion channel um but she's continued to work uh you know she's uh she died at age 65 in in 2015 but she did get to make a good deal of movies in that time and so i decided to go and watch what was essentially i think it was her last fictional feature she also made a bunch of documentaries uh, a lot, and a lot of these films, uh, her documentaries and some of these later fictional features of hers are available on Ovid. So I watched uh, Al Meyer's Folly, uh, a film she adapted from Joseph Conrad's first novel, 
Uh, she previously okay. adapted Proust. And if you're familiar with Joseph Conrad, he's also the one responsible for Heart of Darkness, which would eventually be turned into the film oh. Apocalypse Now. Uh, and he writes a lot of stories about uh, colonialists' experiences in uh, other countries. If you go through the filmography of Chantal Ackerman, she also tells stories of immigration and crossing borders. And Almeyer's Folly is about a, a Frenchman, a white colonialist, living in uh, uh, Malaysia. And how uh, he, and he has a, a daughter that he had with a native woman who is now an adult. And it's about this sort of told out of order narrative about how he is trying to reclaim her. He's trying to rescue her. But Chantal Ackerman is too wise a filmmaker to make this seem like an adventure story of a colonialist trying to rescue uh, somebody from a native country and take them back to the Western world. That's, you know, based on old colonialism. I haven't read the Joseph Conrad novel. I would hope it's actually a little bit more nuanced than just being pro-colonialist. Could be. Uh, but, uh, Chantal Ackerman is trying to depict colonialism as uh, Al Meyer, the main character, is played by an actor named Stanislas Merhar. Uh, he is uh, depicted as being sort of this rotten ghost of his former self. He lives out in the woods in this little shack uh, that he seems to have con uh, constructed himself. He has people who are at his beck and call, but I'm not really sure what their relationship is with him financially. Uh, and... He is just a husk of a human being. He looks like he's, even though he lives out on a river, he looks like he's never been outdoors. He's really pale and sickly. And when he talks, he just sort of like wanders very, very slowly out into the natural world and talks about how everything is sort of lost to him. And we get this idea that colonialism is actually this kind of real realistically psychological form of torpor that has infected the Western world. And it's actually his daughter, his char the character is named Nina. She's played by an actress named Aurora Marion. Uh, she is the one who is actually living. She's the one who actually has some life and actually has a lot of agency here. And indeed, a lot of the movie is devoted to watching her and what her life is like. Chantal Ackerman is known for uh, watching. She keeps her camera back. She lets a lot of long sequences with no dialogue where people are just sort of sitting, smoking a cigarette or having a meal or experiencing life. And we get to just sort of sit there with them for a few minutes. That's what Jen Dielman is very much constructed of. And there's a lot of that here in Elmire's Folly. So we get to get into her mind in a, a very salient, important sort of way than into his. His folly is that he can't let colonialism go, uh, which I imagine is not the theme of the novel. Uh, and there's a really wonderful scene near the end of this movie where the Nina character gets to confront her father and say, I have, a, I have discovered an escape, and it's not you. You're not here to rescue me. Is this going to work out for me? I don't know. But it's my life to, to deal with. And it's more than just that sort of adolescent, but daddy, it's my life. It's more like, mm -hmm. no you're a useless relic of a world that no longer functions. This is our world now. You need to go away. And uh, All right. it's it's a really good message, but Chantal Ackerman is such a slow-moving filmmaker that it doesn't necessarily grab you. She's more interested in concept right. and psychological realism and that dream realism than she is in 
uh, any kind of actual straightforward storytelling. All right. And, and, yeah. So I got to see that one. Yeah. Chantal Ackerman is someone that I, I mean, I have all of her films on my list on Ovid, on my Ovid account <laughs> to get to. I've been meaning to see Jean Dielman for a long time. I originally was going to watch it as a part of my preparation for my episode or the screens margins episode of my dinner with my dinner with my dinner with Andre. Um, uh, but I just never got around to it. I'd still, I'd, I'd still, uh, uh, even though I haven't seen her, any of her films, I my one of my dream movies that n- never happened was I would have loved to see Chantal Ackerman direct um, uh, my dinner with Chiquita, which was with uh, Debbie, Wallace Shawn's partner, and Chiquita, Andre Gregory's partner, who were both intellectuals themselves. And, may, and if my dinner with Andre has a fault, it's that they get short shrifted and so i'd like to see because like chiquita was a filmmaker and um who directed documentaries and like i would i would have loved to see like get Chantal Ackerman to direct my dinner with chiquita which is the sit down between debbie and chiquita but anyway Mm. i've been meaning to see Chantal Ackerman's films um and and i will most likely at some point on this podcast um be able to 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 enjoy them um did you see anything else? Um, have you seen anything else on Ovid that that we haven't already discussed yet? Um, not this week. I did start to, start to watch uh, a documentary film called uh, The Ister, but I didn't get through it because okay. it's like three hours and ten minutes long, uh, in, which is about uh, how the philosopher Hegel... Um, or, or not, it wasn't Hegel, it was Heidegger. Uh, how the philosopher Heidegger tried to at first apologize for the rise of Nazism and then gave up on that and started to focus on poetry instead and how this one particular poem began to inform all of his philosophy. And it's just discussions with professors about philosophy in World War II and the philosophy of Nazism and uh, the counterculture of art during World War II. And yeah, it's all just very classroom. And uh, It sounds like like a blockbuster. Yeah, I, I love that sort of thing personally, but uh, I, you can see why sitting through three hours and ten minutes of that might be a little bit difficult to get to. So I apologize right. for that. Well, no, that's that's fine. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're not just this isn't a one off thing. We're going to keep doing this. Um, oh. So as for me, I did uh, also get to something else. It's uh, I got to uh, a short film um, that's on Ovid. It's um, it's an animated short film. It's called The Clockmakers. Um, it's from director uh, Renaud Halle. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but um, and it is this four, like just over four minute short film. Um, it's it's almost like an experimental where it's these geometric shapes. It's this these lines that are coming out from triangles, um, and these rotoscoped uh, little uh, silhouettes of gymnasts. Um, who are like doing like a trampoline routine on these bars and triangles. And whenever they interact with one of the lines that go out into infinity, um, they, it makes a musical note. And every time they bounce on the triangle, it makes a percussion sound. And so it becomes, it starts out very simple, but within seconds, it becomes this I orgasmic fractal uh, uh, I can't even describe hip hypnotic <laughs> imagery kaleidoscopic imagery of 
these gymnasts multiplying and bouncing in different layers and it eventually goes into 3d and it's just like your mind is like you almost get lightheaded watching it and it's and so it's just this it's this little and and it becomes a musical piece as well with all of these people percussion and and keyboard i'm assuming notes starting to at different pitches it it creates this cacophony of sound and and images and it's just really really trippy and and it's only four minutes so i I recommend everyone everyone (laughs) see it and i I watched it just on my laptop, but if you can watch it on a TV or a projector, watch this as a big screen as possible just to really get lost in it. Um, so the clockmakers from uh, 2013 is <laughs> that's, that's what else I've, I've seen. Oh, um, I love it. I love but, it. <laughs> all right. Um, so, all right. So that's, that's what we've, that's what we've seen on, on Ovid. But uh, so for the time being, this might not be for always, but at least for the time being, this will be a weekly podcast. And so I guess what how we'll wrap up is um, for you, Whitney Seibold, uh, mm-hmm. uh, what's up next on Ovid? Uh, are you, well, what are you I looking mean, into watching? I, I, you have, like all the streaming services, you have an option to just sort of add what you want onto uh, your your own personal playlist. And I was going unless through you're just... Paramount Plus, in which case you're the worst streaming service ever. Um. <laughs> <laughs> wow, but it is the only place to watch Star Trek: The Animated Series right now. That's yeah, frustrating. that's why I did my um, one month free trial. I watched Lower Decks and the Animated Series. My first foray into Star Trek ever. Loved it all, and then got rid of Paramount Plus because I'm not interested <laughs> in that service whatsoever. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm only sticking around. To, I'm, I'm a complete sucker. Like I'm one of those. When it comes to like fandom, Star Trek is the only one I have left. So I'm, I'm a sucker right. for Star Trek. We're gonna give you more Star Trek. Okay, I'll subscribe. Uh, but. <laughs> But uh, Ovid, there's a lot of movies on here that I had always meant to get to. Um, in, in, adi- right. in, in addition to, to uh, additional films by Timing Liang, including The Hole, that's the one I want to see the most. Um, they have Camille Claudel, right. uh, which is the, the film by Bruno uh, Neuton from the late 80s that I remember hearing a lot about. Uh, anything that's over five hours is going to get my attention. So uh, there's... Mm-hmm. Um, a Japanese film called Happy Hour that I really want to see. There's uh, some Love right, Diaz. Right, that's films on my on list there. as well. <laughs> oh gosh, there's some Love Diaz films I want to see. Um, I want, really wanted to see the um, the Marcel Ophuls documentary Hotel Terminus. Uh, just there's okay. so 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 much that I just need to see. All right, so for this next week though, what do you, what do you think you're mm-hmm. going to make a point to see? Just curious. I'm really going to try to do from what is before the Lav Diaz film because I, okay. I re- really need to delve into Lav Diaz in terms of uh, what he has contributed to uh, slow cinema. Uh, I learned about Lav right. Diaz to, to bring this around full circle from Dave White. Dave White uh, is mm-hmm. he's maybe not a Lav Diaz fan, but he makes it a point to see Lav Diaz movies. Uh, the film from what is before uh, on Ovid is five and a half hours in length. <laughs> so whether or not I'm going to be able to actually see it is is another issue. But uh, from what I understand, that can be short for Love Diaz. Love Diaz has made films that can be you know eight, maybe up, even up to twelve hours long. So uh, and that that is fascinating to me that uh, that he's really experiencing pacing and length in a way that Western cinema doesn't even think about. So that that's really wonderful. Yeah. 
I'm I'm in the middle of, of going through or I I've I've seen the first part of LaFleur. I, I, I watched it yesterday. I'm, <laughs> I'm making a point to see it before the end of end of May when it leaves Criterion Channel. Mm. And uh yeah, um I'll get back to you when I've finished it. Um because you know, I don't wanna I don't wanna judge a film I haven't seen all of, even though I've only seen three hours and forty five minutes of it. <laughs> um oh, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can't judge based on the, oh, I've only seen 220 minutes. I can't really judge yet. Well, um, yeah, and how how long is it in, to- in total? It's like 14 hours. It's a long one. Yeah, it's it's a little under 14 hours. But uh anyway, for myself up next on Ovid, I think in the next week I'm going to try and get to a new release. Um it's called Lost Course. Um it's a it's a new documentary from director Jill Lee and it's about a grassroots uh, democratic movement that is going on in southern China and um, so this is an it's an exclusive to, to Ovid it's one of their exclusive premieres so I'm going to going to try and see that and then I'm also if I have time I'm going to try and watch Ambulance um, mm. the film of uh, the Palestinian film uh, about uh terrorist attacks in gaza which is irrelevant right now um so that's that's what i'm going to make a point to see um also i'd like to put on your radar that that their series of best of fest which is a bunch of short films has become available and so i might also just be checking out those whenever i have the time Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just these series of short films ranging between like three and 12 minutes, um, which are, you know, a lot of them seem to be like focused on dance and movement. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, but so that's, that's, that's what I'm, that's what I'm looking forward to seeing. I, I will also, I might see the whole, who knows? Um, I'm, I'm a sucker for Simon Lang at this point. I've only seen two of his films and I'm already in love. Um, <laughs> But uh, but yeah, uh, that I think that pretty much is gonna do it. This is yeah, just gonna be a casual. Hey, what'd you see? Let's talk about it. Uh, a podcast. All of my other podcast series are very structured in that we're talking about you know this film from this filmmaker in this order, or we're talking about a specific new release. And this one, I get to choose. I get to choose, and that's what I'm enjoying. It's almost yeah, like a, yeah. a podcast diary. Um, and I'm and I'm just overjoyed that i get to do it with you and dave white has told me that he might enjoy guest appearing at some point so um so yeah but uh all right with that uh whitney i hear you do podcasts as well um would you maybe want to tell us about those yeah occasionally uh a fellow named william bibiani and i get together and we talk about things uh mostly media things uh we we are the uh the the two over at the critically acclaimed network uh we have a whole slew of podcasts over there uh we have film review podcasts and tv review podcasts we have tv uh, podcasts devoted to the 1966 batman tv series we have uh star trek podcasts that we're just winnowing through all of star trek uh we do uh academy award nominated films we do uh, letters episodes where we just answer letters from listeners we do uh, a podcast devoted to what is not on the disney plus streaming service and uh, we have polls all the time and we uh, have calls occasionally with some of our higher tier patrons uh there's just any anything you want we got it for you uh so yeah go, go on over to criticallyacclaimed.net uh, or patreon.com slash critically network and you can listen to our stuff and you can subscribe if you feel so moved 
Yeah, and yep, the critically acclaimed network, the Screens Margins Podcast Network. I wonder where I got the idea from. No, like you, you guys, you are you are my mentors. I've taken so much of of I mean, just like my structure of what I'm doing here from as from inspiration from you guys. But the difference being is that while you guys are talking about Disney and Batman and Star Trek and uh. All of these things that everybody's talking about, we're over here. Welcome to the Screens Margins, where we talk about Frederick Wiseman and Rainer Werner Fassbinder and Lucrecia Martel. Um, so, yeah, this is the, the Screens Margins. As for for ourselves, we've got we also have a Patreon page where we can where we have several Patreon exclusive series. Um, this one is free, as is our Frederick Wiseman series. All. Uh, our weekly Wiseman and the new releases series where we're dedicated to lower profile new releases fresh from the margins. But on Patreon, you can get um, a Rainer Werner Fassbinder podcast, Fassbinder and his friends, uh, a Spanish language Lucrecia Martel podcast, uh, Las Leguas de Lucrecia. And uh, we also, with Mark Edward Hoyk, um, a, a mutual friend of ours, I have a podcast where we're going through the films of Dorothy Arzner, the lone woman to direct uh, movies in 1930s Hollywood, who also was queer. And we also have a spinoff series called Friends of Dorothy, where we look at her collaborators. Um, specifically, we're going through the films that were written by Zoe Akins, um, who was also a friend of Dorothy, if you know what I mean. And so, yeah, just lots. It's it's all of our all of my co-host Harold, um, who I do Wiseman Fassbender and um, Martel with Anna, who I do the new releases with Mark, who I do Dorothy Arzner and and Friends with. Uh, we're all it's all queer. Everyone's queer here, and uh, uh, as is Whitney. If you hadn't figured it out, um, no, but uh, yeah, so it's oh yeah, that's cute. <laughs> um, a, a, fr- a friend of mine recently uh, recently came out, and so we got like matching swag. So I have all this like pride swag around my apartment right now. Uh, but yeah, we're 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 focused on 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 queer media and media from a queer perspective, and and specifically the the non mainstream stuff. And and I think we're doing good work here. And I'm I'm excited that we have this new series to add to our add to our repertoire. And so yeah. Um, and then as for just you know plugging myself uh you can find me on twitter and at letterboxd at blue gray closet um whitney i believe you can find at whitney seibold on twitter in indie um, it's just just my name no no clever anything yeah um that's without an h by the way <laughs> uh but uh yeah so i mean that's that's pretty much going to do it for for our inaugural episode of all about ovid that's all with an o about with an o ovid with an o um thank you very much for listening because well we know that there's a pull these days when it comes to films to focus only on the big and the mainstream stuff so thanks for spending time with us today here on the margins good afternoon Uh